Thank you. Thank you. Don't take up my time. Thank you so much. It is a great pleasure and a privilege to be back at the Masters College. I want to mention just one book that's back there at the book table. There will be a book table out here, and I will be glad to autograph books that you buy or old books that you've worn out. Anybody here that's read a book called Passion and Purity? Several? I don't see any hands, but obviously somebody... Oh, yeah, there's two people back there that read the book. I'm sorry we have very few copies today, but um, if you... We run out, we have order blanks, and you can order that book. It is the story of the love story of Jim Elliott and me, a man that I met way back in college a thousand years ago, and uh, goes into pretty intimate detail from his diaries and letters and all of that. And I do want to emphasize that the mes- message of sexual purity is for men as well as women. I've never been able to understand why people seem to automatically assume that the subject of purity is for females alone, as though it doesn't take two to tango. I want to say to the men, um, if you don't want to read a book called Passion and Purity, is because you don't have any passion, or is it because you're not interested in purity, or whatever. Anyway, it is the story of Jim, as well as of me. There is another book. I think we've got plenty of copies of this one. It's called Loneliness. A lady came up to me at the book table and she looked at that and she said, Loneliness, what's that book about? (laughs) Well, it's about a human condition. I think we're all lonely because, as St. Augustine said, O God, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So it is just our existential situation, loneliness. Even married people are lonely, and occasionally college students admit that they are lonely too, so you might want to look at that book. There are two questions that I think would divide all who believe that there is a God. They don't have to be Christians, but anybody who thinks that there is a God, um, there are two attitudes to take. One is, I have to turn the page here, I'm on the wrong page. One is, what do I want and how do I twist God's arm to make him give it to me? Or, what does God want and how can I cooperate in the accomplishment of his will? I'd like you to stop and ask yourself, in all honesty, which of those categories you might fall into. What do I want, and how can I twist God's arm to get it? Or what does God want, and how can I cooperate in the accomplishment of his will? A friend of mine, a very fine graduate of graduate school and a woman with a great long resume was very interested in in going to the mission field but she wasn't at all sure that she ought to and she didn't know whether God was calling her or not we had many long discussions about how to discern the will of God and she said to me one day I don't see how I'm ever going to find out the will of God because I don't even know what I want and I said to her well do you think it's important to know what you want It seems to me that if you make up your mind that you want to know the will of God, then it's simple enough 
to simply say, Lord, I'll do what you say. I have no choices of my own. Most of us have a whole lot of preferences and hopes and fears, and what we need to do is to bring those all under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verses 6 and 7 and 11 and 14, we have a passage that tells us how Christians sort of have to stand on their heads in order to get a proper perspective on God's vision of the world. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, We do speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, the wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Then verses 11 to 14, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the Spirit, the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now, the subject of sexual purity, I suppose, in the 1960s, 70s, and even a good part of the 80s was one of those bits of true wisdom that made absolutely no sense whatsoever to the flower children and the Vietnam veterans and all the people back in the 60s who wanted to just wipe all of tradition and all the rules off the board and do their own thing. I think it's the mercy of God that has allowed AIDS to become an epidemic. Perhaps it's not God's punishment so much as it's God's mercy to keep us out of hell. And I think the idea of sexual purity is beginning to make sense, not from God's standpoint at all, but just from pure self-protection and self-love. We don't want AIDS, do we? And it is one of those dangers. And sex outside of marriage has always been a very dangerous business, not only because of sexually transmitted diseases, which perhaps are a minor problem compared to all the ruin that results from sexual freedom, messing around, doing what feels good, and then kicking yourself for the rest of your life. And ladies and gentlemen, I do get a lot of mail from college students. I know you're looking at this old lady up there and you're saying, well, she came from some other planet and she has no more idea where we're at. But I do have a fairly good idea where you're at because of all this mail that I get. I get avalanches of mail from young people giving me their stories. Many of them have read my book, Passion and Purity, and they tell me they've read the book and they liked it and all that. And then they say, but, you know, I've got this question I want to ask you. Well, I thought that I had covered all possible questions on the subject of sexual purity in my book, Passion and Purity, because I've said my piece there, but they don't necessarily get the message. And they very often write 10, 15, 20, even 25-page letters giving me all the details 
of this really neat relationship that was really neat, but it's not so neat anymore and things have fallen apart and one thing and another and so often, um, naturally the majority of the letters are from women, but I do get quite a few from men. Usually the woman's story is of this wonderful guy who really loved the Lord and they worked together, went to college together perhaps, went on a summer missions team together, worked together in the church with the youth group and all of that, and then somehow or other he just decides, after having given her every reason to believe that she is exactly what he's looking for, he just sort of rides off into the sunset, disappears, often with a lot of very spiritual-sounding reasons. I want to read a letter. I just brought along a letter. It just happened to come just before I left on this trip, and I thought, well, it's representative. It's from a young woman in one of the 50 states. Thank you for your book, Passion and Purity. I just finished the last chapter tonight. I believe that through you, through your book, you have become more of a real person to me. And then she writes in big letters right across the page, confidential, confidential, confidential. So I'll read it to you, okay? This spring, I started dating a man. His name is, let's call him Joe. Both Joe and I attend such and such a college and major in missions. We have many things in common. We both like to be outdoors and enjoy nature. We both enjoy singing and are members of the college choir. But best of all, we both have a tender heart toward our Lord. Joe is very different from any man I've ever dated before. I could rave about all his good qualities, but I don't want to bore you. What I appreciated about the times we've spent together is the way in which he, and here, this blew my mind. I don't get very many letters like this. He is so self-controlled in the area of physical contact. To be honest, sometimes it drives me nuts. For example, we have been courting. I like that word better than dating, she says. For almost four months, and he has not held my hand. Can you imagine this? I don't know how many times my family has asked me, has he kissed you yet? Sometimes I get impatient, but this is the part that I think is crucial, and I hear this line from both men and women over and over again, deep down inside. I hope he will continue to hold off on physical contact. Especially after reading your book where Jim kissed you for the first time after five years when he finally proposed to you. I, too, hope that Joe and I can maintain that purity in our relationship. Now, most of the letters I get do not tell me about control of physical contact. They tell me about the loss of control. And I want to say to you this morning, nobody gives away his or her virginity. Nobody loses his or her virginity. I often hear from students saying, I I lost my virginity. You didn't lose it. You gave it away. You gave it to the wrong person. And virginity is an irreplaceable gift that can only be given once to the right person. It's my most earnest plea that you will give consideration to saving your virginity if you haven't already given it away for that person to whom God will give you in marriage. It's worth the wait. It is a thousand times worth the wait. 
the ruination, the heartbreak, the letters I get from both men and women telling me how terrible they feel about themselves. They have destroyed their self-image. They want a virgin in marriage, and I would be willing to guarantee, bet everything I own, that there is not one man in this room that would not hope that he will get a virgin for a wife. It doesn't make any difference how many women you may have ruined and whose virginity you may have stolen. You still want a virgin for a wife. Would it be any different with the women? The women want a man who hasn't slept with anybody. I wanted a man who'd never kissed anybody. I wanted a man with whom I had done absolutely nothing that I would be ashamed of. And we would come to the marriage bed, both of us, having waited. You know, to me, it's the same principle that was taught to us children when we were little. You don't get your dessert until you eat your spinach. The spinach part is the discipline. Then comes the fun part. You don't have the fun part first and then try to choke down the spinach. Or the principle of Christmas. We didn't make a huge thing out of Christmas, but we did have a small Christmas tree. This was in the Depression days. You have heard of the Great Depression, have you, way back in the 1930s? Well, I can remember those real well. We didn't have very much money. And when I knew that my mother had been out Christmas shopping and she would come back with a shopping bag full of stuff, I was dying to see what that was. And when I knew that she was in the guest room with the door locked and she was wrapping presents, I wanted to know, but I really didn't want to know. There was a tremendous temptation to peek through the keyhole, to sneak in there later and sort of squeeze and feel the packages. But there was something else that I wanted more than that, and that was to save the surprise for Christmas Day. To save the surprise. Don't you want to save the surprise of sex? Now, a lot of you have not saved it, and I know that. I don't know who you are. Probably most of your classmates and friends don't know who you are, but God does, and you do, and the other person knows. And I'm going to get to that. But I would like to tell you, for the encouragement of all of you, whether you are still a virgin or not, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. And you can start over. You can ask God to forgive you for your foolishness. It is wrong. It is very wrong. Not just because you're going to get AIDS. Not just because you might get pregnant or you might get somebody pregnant. It is wrong because God says it's wrong. Thou shalt not commit adultery. In the New Testament, the word fornication is used a number of times, and it means all kinds of sexual sin. I want to read from 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter. Any of you wanting to know the will of God for your life? Well, here's one of the clear and unequivocal statements of the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. Well, let me just start from the beginning of the chapter. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be 
holy. There's a simple, utterly unequivocal statement of God's will. That is what he wants for you and me. He wants holy men and holy women. What does every church in the world need more than anything else? It needs a holy pastor. What does every family need more than anything else? What do children need? They need holy fathers, holy mothers. What does this college need? Holy professors, professors who actually profess something. There are an awful lot of professors in the world that don't profess anything at all. It's just whatever feels good. You do what's right for you, I'll do what's right for me. I was watching TV the other day, and two people were arguing about the fact that there is no such thing as morality anymore. Oh, it's my, I have my own morality, of course, she said. But my morality is not your morality, and don't try to jam your morality down my throat. And I thought it was very ironic that that particular program was uh, dealing with the subject of child abuse. And you know, there wasn't one person on that show that hinted that they were in favor of child abuse. Everybody knew that it's wrong, period, case closed. Child abuse is wrong. We all know that. I didn't hear anybody say, don't jam your morality down my throat. I like to abuse children. I happen to be a pedophile myself, and it's fun. Nobody said that. But how many times do we hear that phrase used with regard to, let's say, abortion or homosexuality? Don't jam your morality down my throat. Well, here's what God has to say. It is God's will that you should be holy. And then immediately and in the same verse, that statement is followed by this. You should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. The Lord will punish men for such sins. God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Nothing could be more uh, twisted than the view that God doesn't like sex. After all, it was God's idea. And C.S. Lewis said, you wouldn't have thought of it think about that one it was God's idea you wouldn't have thought of it and if you had you would never have dared to arrange things with the high risk that God did when he arranged to make this marvelous distinction between male and female you know the difference between men and women is not merely an anatomical triviality it is ontological, for those of you who study philosophy and know what that word means, and it is also theological, and I think you do know what that word means. God created men and women to be different, and there is a glorious difference, and there is a harmony of differences. And in my book, The Mark of a Man, I have tried to spell out the distinctions between men and women in emphasizing what masculinity means. And in my book, Let Me Be a Woman, I write about what femininity means and sometimes when I ask women what do you look for in men they tell me masculinity we're not talking about that pejorative term macho we're talking about real men for God what is it you men want do you want some 
swaggering woman who walks around with a backpack and fists clenched, and if you open the door for her, she's likely to give you one in the chops. My brother was, I don't think there are too many of them around anymore, and certainly not at Master's College, but my brother was a professor in a Christian college, and he opened a door for a student, a girl student one day. And she swung around and she said, did you do that because I'm a lady? And he said, no, I did that because I'm a gentleman. Well, once upon a time, I was in college in my last year, and I was entering into the stage that we called senior panic. That sudden, overwhelming consciousness that my chances of ever being married were getting extremely slim. If you don't meet a Christian husband on a Christian campus where there's all these unattached males where in the world are you ever going to meet a Christian husband? And I was pretty sure that God was calling me to go to Africa as a missionary, and I thought my chances would be severely reduced of finding a husband after I got there. <laughs> and so I began to pray. I was not at all uh, against the idea of being a missionary. I was thrilled by the fact that in, my, uh, in the summer between my junior and senior year, I really felt that God had confirmed my call to the foreign mission field, and that was what I had longed for all my life. But I knew a lot of old maid missionaries, and some of them were wonderful people. But wonderful as they were, I really didn't want to be an old maid missionary. I wanted to have a husband and children and a home. And so I began to pray very specifically about this matter of having a husband. There were no prospects whatsoever on my horizon. I was a wallflower, as we used to say back then, a girl who hardly ever got dated. One guy named Phil dated me one time, and I was extremely flattered until I found out that the reason he dated me was because he was a member of the Bachelors Club on the campus, and the one requirement of the members of that club was that they date every week a different girl, preferably somebody who never got dated. So this was not flattering to me. But I began to pray and say, Lord, are you going to give me a husband? Is there a possibility that maybe way down the line there will be a husband? Or do you want me to be an old maid? Well, the Lord didn't say yes to my first question. And he didn't say yes to my second he didn't tell me he was going to give me a husband, and he didn't tell me that he wanted me to be an old maid. You know what he said? Trust me. Trust me. The Bible says in Psalm 84, verse 11, No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now, marriage looks like a very good thing to almost all of us. I don't know very many people who really don't want to get married. It's a good thing, and it was a good thing when God designed it, and he said it was a good thing when he gave Adam his wife Eve. It was not a good thing for Adam to be alone. It was a good thing when he gave him a wife. But you see, things have gotten very messed up since the Garden of Eden. There are a lot of single people, and God knows single people have been a tremendous blessing throughout Christian history, many of them, for the kingdom's sake. And the Apostle Paul wished that everybody was single as he was. Well, if they had been, of course, you and I wouldn't be here, would we? But 
singleness is not our first choice. And the Lord was simply saying, it's your job to walk uprightly. If I know that marriage is a good thing for you, then you can be sure that I know how to bring the man to you at the right time and in the right place. And so I had to really deal with the first major issue of what trust is all about. Trust is totally surrendering all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accepting the will of God, knowing that the will of God ultimately will bring me by far the greatest joy. God wants our fulfillment. Do you believe that? Is he trying to spoil our fun when he says abstain from fornication? No, any more than my mother was trying to spoil our fun when she said eat your spinach first. The fun is having the dessert afterwards. The fun is waiting for Christmas. Christmas is a lot of fun if you haven't been sneaking around and peeking in the packages. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And so I struggled in prayer and said, okay, Lord, yes, I'll take it. Whatever you want to give me, if it's singleness for the rest of my life, I'll take it. Well, when you make that kind of a commitment, it's really hypothetical, isn't it? Because you don't have any choice of anything else. It reminds me of an old song we used to sing. I don't know if anybody's ever heard it anymore, but it was called, I'd Rather Have Jesus. And in one of the stanzas, it says, I'd rather have Jesus than to be the king of a vast domain. Now, how many of us have that option? I mean, it's very easy to say, I'd rather have Jesus than all the gold in the world. You don't have that option. You don't have the option to be a king. So I said, yes, Lord, I'll take singleness. But I didn't have any other options at that point. So what happens? God has to test our commitment. And you can be assured and put this in your pipe and smoke it, or I guess you don't smoke pipes around here, but put it in your needles and knit it or something. For future reference, remember that God will always give you the best. And so, in fact, I'll give you a little poem that I memorized way back then. He knows, he loves he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice with him. And remember that every time you make a decision on God's side, this you do need to put in your pipes and smoke. If every time you make a decision for the will of God, Satan is going to attack it. I don't think I've ever made a difficult or an important decision in my whole life that has not been challenged by the enemy because he can't stand it if you obey God. The minute you start trying, that is where the test is going to come. He's going to leave you alone as long as he doesn't know for sure that you're on God's side. But when you make that commitment, he's going to come real fast with very, very subtle temptations. Well, God had to test the reality and the validity of that commitment. And what happened? I found myself falling in love. Falling in love with a guy with whom I did not have a ghost of a chance, as far as I knew. I mean, he was what we used to call a dreamboat back in those days. I don't know if you call them hunks or something else nowadays. But he was a big 
big man on campus, BMOC, we used to call him, big man on campus, or a BTO, a big-time operator. And I was only a TWO, a teeny-weeny operator. And he was very visible. He was a campus leader in many ways. He was popular. He was handsome. He was built. He was um, a clown, the kind of guy that could stand up and do one-liners and stand-up comedy at the drop of a hat. He was the spiritual leader of the campus, the president of the Foreign Missions Fellowship, so that was kind of an interesting combination. He was a champion wrestler, won the championship in his weight class in four states. And he was a Greek major and graduated summa cum laude in classical Greek. So I thought, you know, this guy, he's got it together, and he's got just about everything that I had on the list that I'd written down in the back of my diary when I was about 16 years old, except that he wasn't six feet four, and he did not have an operatic baritone voice. But everything else checked out okay. But then I said to myself, you idiot, you fool, you nut. I mean, what would ever, ever give you the idea that a guy like that would ever look at a woman like you? And so things went on, and my brother, Dave, who was on the same wrestling squad with Jim and had been saying to me, you've got to get to know this Elliot guy. You know, you really like him. And I began to find myself being much more and more interested in him. And Dave brought him home for Christmas, not having the slightest idea that I was interested in Jim. And we found ourselves sitting up till all hours of the night talking, Jim and I, about many things that I never dreamed he was interested in, one of which, one of which was Amy Carmichael's books. And I thought to find a man who was interested in Amy Carmichael's books and had actually memorized some of her poetry, that really blew my mind. We went back to college after Christmas, we had almost exactly the same schedule of classes since we had the same major. And I began to think maybe there were times when he seemed to be climbing over other people in order to get the seat next to me. And I thought, oh, you know, that you're just imagining things. Don't pay attention to that. But when our yearbooks came out, I rushed along with all the other girls on the campus to get Jim Elliott's autograph. He never dated anybody, so he was very interesting to all of us. We were all mystified by the fact that this great guy never wanted to date. But I was hoping against hope that he wouldn't just write his name. He would put something in there that might be a little cryptic message, maybe, for me. <laughs> so it was, I was thrilled when I saw that he not only signed his name with a very flourishing signature, but he also put something underneath, which I couldn't see from the distance. He shut the book, gave it back to me. I quickly thumbed to his picture, found that he had written 2 Timothy 2.4 underneath the picture. Well, I didn't know what that was, so you can imagine how long it took me to go back to the dorm, get my Bible. and It said, a soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. <laughs> he must be holy at his commanding officer's disposal. Well, I liked everything else I had known about Jim, and this went to the top of the list. Here is a man, even though whatever, if he's giving me a cryptic message, is not very cryptic. What he's telling me is, hands off, old lady, you know, you're not going to get anywhere near me. I've got my mind on one thing, and I'm going to do that one thing. But that was what impressed me. Here's a man who has made up his mind, finally and irrevocably, to do the will of God. He was utterly at the commanding officer's disposal, disposable for God. 
It was just a few weeks before I graduated that Jim asked me if I would go for a walk with him. I thought I would die. We hadn't walked a half a block when he turned to me and he said, I think we need to get squared away how we feel about each other. Well, I was stunned to think that he had some feelings for me. I was a bit irritated to think that this man had the cheek and the brass and the arrogance to imagine that I had some feelings for him. (laughs) Because I thought I had done a perfect job of keeping my feelings to myself. I had never, by so much as a flicker of an eyelash, let him think that I was interested in him. In obedience to my mother's two things that she told me when I was about 13. She gave me two rules, and girls, they work. They do work. Never chase boys. Number two, keep them at arm's length. You you may not like that, and you may say, well, you know, in this day and age, we're all equal. There's no reason why I shouldn't call up a guy, no reason why I shouldn't pick up my half of the tab, or even the whole tab sometimes. Baloney, forget it. If my husband Lars were here, he would love to say what he always says on that subject. He said, you know, a real man wants to take care of a real woman. And he said, I enjoy taking care of my wife. Now, you may look at me and think that woman doesn't look as though she needs to be taken care of. She probably has a few opinions of her own. And I've spent most of my life single, actually, believe it or not, even though Lars is my third husband. Numbers one and two are both with the Lord. I know that deep down inside, I want someone to submit to, someone who loves me. So anyway, I was irritated that Jim actually had assumed, for what reason God only knows, that I had some feelings for him. And so I said, what do you mean? And he said, what do you mean? What do I mean? (laughs) You know what I mean. I've been in love with you for months. I said, no, I, I didn't know that. Well, he said, you must be deaf, dumb, and blind. He said, I've been t- trying to tell you in every way except verbal, and now I'm telling you. But the second thing, which nearly blew me away, was I think maybe God is calling me to be single, perhaps for the rest of my life, he said. Well, we went into a park, and we sat down, we talked for seven hours. We discovered that Jim had fallen in love with me right back Christmas vacation or sometime around then and had been praying and struggling with whether or not he was going to be single for the rest of his life, which he thought very likely God wanted him to do because he was going into pioneer missionary work, which some older pioneer missionaries had told him requires bachelors. It wasn't that he was a woman hater at all. He just had the good sense to guard himself from the temptation of women because in high school he had found out that they could be an awful waste of time and money. So he was willing, if that's what God would reveal, that he would stay single the rest of his life. So he said very plainly to me, I am not asking you to marry me. I am not asking you to wait for me. I know that if God ever gives me the green light to get married, I know who I would like to have for my wife. And you're it. But he said, you go ahead and go to Africa. I am going to Latin America. And if God wants to bring us together, he knows how to do that. And so you know from the book, if you've read it, that it was five and a half years before God actually did bring us together. I remember the tremendous thrill of walking out of that wedding ceremony and thinking of those words, till death 
Vastupart. That's 50 years from now. This man belongs to me and I belong to this man for until death. Nothing else can possibly separate us. It was a wonderful, thrilling thing to realize that God had given us the gift of marriage. He took me to Panama for our honeymoon. He hadn't told me anything about where we were going. But we got on a plane, and I can remember sitting in the seat of that plane and looking at Jim and thinking, my husband, isn't this the most unimaginable, most un an inexpressible thing in the world. I belong to this man. He is mine. I'm his. We got to the hotel. We went to dinner. We sat opposite each other over candlelight. And at the end of the meal, we dawdled over the meal just to savor it, you know, to save the surprises. Savor the meal. We listened to a dance band. There were people dancing there. It was just fun, beautiful, nice hotel. And finally, Jim looked over those candles at me and he said, I can't believe we've got a bed waiting for us upstairs. I mean, that's serious. You know, that is big time, major big serious. (laughs) If you've never been there before, if you've never been messing around in the backseat of a car with your hands all over somebody and your clothes off, You know, keep your hands off and your clothes on. That's the rule. Don't chase boys. Keep them at arm's length. And girls, I'll tell you the truth. What could be more obvious? You will never find yourself in a compromising position if you keep those rules that my mother gave me. My mother was a Victorian, of course. When people say to me, well, you know, but your ideas, they are so Victorian. I say, look, they're a whole lot older than that. They are a lot older than that. And I read them to you from 1 Thessalonians 5. This is the will of God that you should be holy, 1 Thessalonians 4, excuse me. Abstain from sexual sin. Now, one more time, I want to remind you that you can start over. Those of you who have blown it, as it were, you know you're kicking yourself. I've had letters from girls saying, I feel so filthy. I feel so used. I feel discarded. I have lost a priceless thing. I have lost the precious thing that I wanted to give to my husband. I had a letter from a young man, 28 years old, army officer. He said, I am still a virgin. But he said, I have had to fight every inch of the way to keep my virginity. And he told me some lurid stories of things that women had done to rob him of that gift. God gave you that gift. God designed the glory, the beauty, the harmony, the sexual thrills of marriage. Now, Jim and I made a rule. We would not hold hands. Why? Is it a sin to hold hands? And you're sitting there thinking, oh, don't tell me this lady's going to tell me it's a sin to hold hands. I want to ask you a question. I want you to be honest with yourselves. Does it make any difference to you whether you're holding hands with your grandmother, shaking hands with the preacher at the door, or holding hands with a member of the opposite sex who is very attractive and you're both 
alone in a dark place. Is there any difference? You know that there is a difference that's as great as night and day. It was God's design that the first touch from a member of the opposite sex who is attractive to you would be exciting. So you want the excitement, don't you? That's why you do it. I mean, if people say to me, you know, holding hands, that really doesn't mean anything. A hug doesn't mean anything. A kiss doesn't mean anything. Then why do you do it? Why do you do it? Don't give me that line. I know, you know, God knows. It does mean a lot because that first touch is the first step. After the the hand hold, then there's a squeeze, then there's a hug, then there's a different kind of a hug, then there's a kiss. And then there's a different kind of a kiss. You know what I'm talking about. And I have all these letters from young people saying that somehow or other, you know, we found ourselves in bed. How? How did it happen? Happens the same way every time. The progression that God designed to lead into the marriage bed, where you are protected, set about with walls, fences, by the vows that you make before God and these witnesses, I receive this woman to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, till death us do part. That's what marriage is about. One man, one woman, in one bed, after, after the public pronouncement of lifetime vows. That's what it's about. That's the surprise that God wants to save you for and for you. Back to that question I asked you at the beginning. Is your attitude, what do I want and how can I twist God's arm to get it? Or is your attitude, what does God want and how can I cooperate with him? To fulfill his purposes. God wants you to be pure. God wants the fulfillment, the joy, the unsullied pleasure described in the Song of Solomon. If he has marriage for you, that's what he wants it to be. Why abstain? Not just because of AIDS, not just because of unplanned pregnancies, not just because you're going to feel filthy if you don't abstain. Because God says to. Because God says to. Have you ever wrecked an appliance or a tape recorder or a camera or something that you've spent a lot of money on because you didn't read the directions? When all else fails, read the directions. It's chaos out there, but there's order here. Some of you didn't read the directions. You messed up. Go to God. Repent. Go to the person that you ruined. Ask their forgiveness and start over. You know, God will not give you back back your virginity any more than he can give you back your leg if it gets chopped off. But he will give you back your chastity. He will give you back your purity. And if you're in a relationship right now that you know has already gone too far, You go and say to that person, I learned something. 
we've got to cut this out. And I would certainly suggest that if you're in that kind of a relationship, it's probably best to just forget about it. Just cut it off. But at least start over. Arm's length, hands off, close on. And I want to leave you with this verse from Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. God bless you.